Hello, and welcome back to the History Obscura Reading Room. It's Alfred Hitchcock's birthday today. His ethereal mass is in the parlor with Froggy sharing a piece of cake. It's also the anniversary of Hernan Cortez's conquest of Tenochtitlan, so Tito is taking care of his ethereal mass in the dungeon. Won't you join me for a cup of tea? Well then. Once upon a time, in England, and apparently other locations too, it was the year 1666. On the throne was the very controversial Charles II, son of the only English king to have been executed by his own government and replaced by an interregnum parliament and eventually a succession of Lord Protectors of the realm. It was an awkward moment in time. England was still recovering from its latest widespread case of the plague, and out-of-work musicians flooded the yard of St. Paul's Cathedral, a popular networking spot for new appointments and instruments. The reason for the churchyard's popularity was that it had been made defunct during the English Civil War and Cromwell's leadership. Where previous monarchs had begun restoration work on the 11th century cathedral, Cromwell's parliamentarian army defaced and then ransacked it for any items they found to be popish, including old documents and charters. Afterwards, the nave was used as a stable for cavalry horses. And now it was open again. Charles II's restoration period was notable for a relaxation of the strict Puritan morality of the previous decades. Theater, sports, and dancing were revived. Charles's court was a place of revelry and licentiousness. And England was a country once more in transition. London, in the year 1666, was by far the largest city in Britain and the third largest in Europe, with an estimated population of 300 to 400,000 people. London had been a Roman settlement for four centuries and had become progressively more crowded inside its defensive city wall. It had also pushed outwards beyond the wall into squalid extramural slums such as Shoreditch, Holborn, and Salwark, and had reached far enough to include the independent city of Westminster. The bulk of the conglomerated city was comprised of houses, shops, and commercial buildings constructed of wooden frames and straw roofs. Crowded, polluted, and quite unsanitary, London was predisposed to the rapid spread of unsavory afflictions. A man named Thomas Fariner was one Londoner who had persevered through the recent spread of plague and dangerous politics and focused on building his business. Working in bakeries during his youth, by 1666 he owned his own shop in Pudding Lane and provided baked goods to the likes of the Royal Navy. In the early hours of the 2nd of September, 1666, Fariner was awakened by smoke coming out from under the door of his bedroom. His house had apparently caught fire from an unchecked oven in the bakery downstairs. Fariner, with his daughter, managed to escape out of an upstairs window. Their maid, however, refused to follow them, 
frightened of falling into the street, and she was the first victim of the Great Fire of London. On that same day, a naval man by the name of Samuel Pepys wrote the following entry in his daily diary. Lord's Day. Some of our maids, sitting up late last night to get things ready against our feast today, Jane called us up about three in the morning to tell us a great fire they saw in the city. So I rose and slippered on my nightgown, went to her window, and thought it to be on the backside of Mark Lane at the farthest, but being unused to such fires as followed, I thought it far enough off, and so went to bed again and to sleep. About seven, rose again to dress myself, and there looked out the window and saw the fire not so much as it was and further off. So, to my closet to set things right after yesterday's cleaning. By and by, Jane comes and tells me that she hears above 300 houses have been burned down tonight by the fire we saw, and that it is now burning down all Fish Street by London Bridge. So I made myself ready presently and walked to the tower, and there got upon one of the high places, Sir J. Robinson's little son going up with me. And there did I see the houses at that end of the bridge all on fire, and an infinite great fire on this and the other side at the end of the bridge, which, among other people, did trouble me for poor little Michelle and our Sarah on the bridge. So down, with my heart full of trouble, to the lieutenant of the tower, who tells me that it begun this morning in the king's baker's house in Pudding Lane, and that it hath burned St. Magnus's church and most part of Fish Street already. Indeed, the next day's newspapers reported that a fire had begun at a bakery in Pudding Lane at either 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning of the 2nd of September. The London Gazette reported that in its early stages, the fire was not handled particularly competently, with none of the adjacent houses being pulled down to prevent its spread. His Majesty the King, it was also reported, was quite brave enough to appear on the scene during the day of the 3rd, and order that all possible measures be taken to prevent the fire's further spread. In particular, houses were plucked down around the area of the Tower of London, in which various wartime stores were kept, such as weaponry and gunpowder. This was a successful venture though perhaps not from the perspective of those whose homes were plucked from the scene or burned altogether. The second day of wind and growing fire and ash, Samuel Pepys wrote the following in his diary. Monday, 3rd of September, 1666. About four o'clock in the morning, my Lady Batten sent me a cart to carry away all my money and plate and best things to Sir W. Ryder's at Bednall Green, which I did riding myself in my nightgown in the cart, and Lord, to see how the streets and the highways are crowded with people running and riding and getting of carts at any rate to fetch away things. I find Sir W. Ryder tired with being called up all night and receiving things from several friends. His house full of goods and much of Sir W. Batten's and Sir W. Penn's. I am eased at my heart to have my treasure so well secured. Then home, with much ado to find a way, nor any sleep all this night, to me my poor wife, 
But then, and all this day, she and I, and all my people laboring to get away the rest of our things, and did get Mr. Tooker to get me a lighter to take them in, and we did carry them, myself some, over Tower Hill, which was by this time full of people's goods, bringing their goods thither, and down to the lighter which lay at the next quay above the tower dock. And here was my neighbor's wife, with her pretty child and some few of her things, which I did willingly give way to be saved with mine. But there was no passing with anything through the postern. The crowd was so great. The damage caused by the fire was immense. 436 acres of London were destroyed, including 13,200 houses and 87 out of 109 churches. Some places still smoldered for months afterwards. Only 51 churches and about 9,000 houses were rebuilt. St. Paul's Cathedral was ruined, as was the Guild Hall and 52 livery company halls. There was no fire brigade in London in 1666, so Londoners themselves had to fight the fire helped by local soldiers. They used leather buckets of water, rudimentary one-shot water pumps, and fire hooks. Equipment was stored in local churches. The best way to stop the fire was to pull down houses with hooks to make gaps or fire breaks. This was difficult because the wind forced the fire across any gaps created. The mayor, Thomas Bloodworth, complained, The fire overtakes us faster than we can do it. A quicker way of demolishing houses was to blow them up with gunpowder. Pepys himself spoke to the Admiral of the Navy and agreed they should blow up houses in the path of the fire. The hope was that by doing this, they would create a space to stop the fire spreading from house to house. Fire posts, each staffed by 130 men, were set up around the city to fight the blaze. On Tuesday night, the wind dropped and the firefighters finally gained control. By dawn on Thursday, the fire was out. In Pepe's diary, on Tuesday the 4th, Up by break of day to get away the remainder of my things, which I did by a lighter at the iron gate, and my hands so few, that it was the afternoon before we could get them all away. Sir W. Penn and I to Tower Street, and there met the fire burning three or four doors beyond Mr. Howells, whose goods, poor man, his trays and dishes, shovels, etc., were all flung all along Tower Street in the kennels, and people working therewith from one end to the other, the fire coming in on that narrow street on both sides with infinite fury. Sir W. Batten, not knowing how to remove his wine, did dig a pit in the garden and laid it in there, and I took the opportunity of laying all the papers of my office that I could not otherwise dispose of. And in the evening, Sir W. Penn and I did dig another and put our wine in it, and I my Parmesan cheese, as well as my wine and some other things. When the flames finally died down and came mostly under control by Wednesday the 5th, nearly the entire city proper lay in ruin, and the ground remained too hot to walk on for several days afterwards. 
Survivors were quick to point fingers and place blame. Not, oddly enough, solely at the feet of Thomas Fariner, but at myriad others, including papists, the king, and the French. The Gazette said, Strangers, Dutch and French, were, during the fire, apprehended upon suspicion that they contributed mischievously to it, who are all imprisoned and informations prepared to make a severe inquisition. A later memorial plaque placed only a few years after the Great Fire would read, The most dreadful burning of this city, begun and carried on by the treachery and malice of the Popish faction. Though belief was widespread following the fire that it had indeed come from Fariner's Bakery, the baker himself publicly attested that after midnight when the bakery closed on the 1st of September, he had gone through every room and found no fire, but in one chimney where the room was paved with bricks, which fire I diligently raked up in embers. No window or door might let wind disturb them. Fariner claimed further that someone else had started the offending fire after his nightly check, on purpose with intent to cause harm. Ultimately, the man tried and convicted of that exact crime was a Frenchman called Robert Hubert, an alleged simpleton who was later proven not to have even been in England until two days after the start of the fire. Hubert's confession either the product of torturous questioning or a mental handicap, according to various contemporary witnesses, was bizarre. He first claimed to have begun the fire in Westminster, a district undisturbed by the flames, and afterwards said that what he'd actually done was thrown a rudimentary firebomb into the window of the Fariner Bakery. In fact, the bakery had had no windows. It took nearly 50 years to rebuild the burnt area of London, all of which was forbidden to be faced with wood instead of brick or stone. The existing 12th century ban on thatched roofing came back into effect, and St. Paul's Cathedral was not completed until 1711. Thomas Fariner and his children signed a legal bill accusing Frenchman Robert Hubert, or Robert Hubert, of starting the fire. Fariner died in 1690 at the age of 54, slightly over four years after the Great Fire. As for Robert Hubert, he was hanged in October of 1666, and upon the transfer of his body from the gallows to the cart, his body was torn apart by a crowd of angry Londoners. Thank you for listening. Remember to check out Historical Fiction Book Club wherever you get podcasts. Good night. Mm-hmm.